Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. The world works in certain ways until a new great idea comes along and changes everything. We need a name. We. We live. We dream. We work. I'm Travis Kalanick, and I will never back down from a fight. And if no one wants to believe in me, I'll make them believe by being undeniable. These kids don't overthink. They don't get bogged down about the way things have always been done. They want to change things now. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching Downfall of the Startups. I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. I'm here today with Vanity Fair Audio Editor Katie Rich. Hi. And Vanity Fair Staff Writer Julie Miller. Hello, ladies. Hello. Uh, So for those of uh, you just joining us, uh, this season of Still Watching is covering multiple shows centered on a similar theme. People who had a big idea, got rich, and then took a tumble. Just a reminder that if you have any questions or comments while you're listening, please do reach out to us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. It can be a criticism. It can be a correction. We welcome those, <laughs> you know, or if you just want to send us a love letter, that's fine, too. Um, so this is a, a an exciting episode because we are welcoming a third series into the mix. For the past two weeks, we've just been talking about uh, Showtime Super Pumped, about Uber and Hulu's the dropout about Theranos, and now we have Apple TV uh, with We Crashed, which is about WeWork, uh, the work-sharing um, company, and its founder Adam Newman and his very interesting wife Rebecca Newman. Um, that show premiered on Friday. Um, all of these shows, you know, like I said, are about a business um, that we have heard a lot about in real life. Um, but the sh- these shows offer us also a portrait of the personalities behind them. Um, I don't know. I'm eager to hear from you two about what you think of We Crashed. I think we'll start there just because it's the new new kid in the class. Um, it's kind of more of a sentimental sentimental human drama for me um, than Super Pumped is definitely, and maybe even The Dropout, even though in this episode of The Dropout, episode five, we get into some really heavy emotional stuff. Um, Katie, I'll start with you. Uh, how do you feel We Crashed fits into the triptych uh, of these series? Well, when you talk about it being sentimental, it's interesting because with the dropout, you've got a, a convicted criminal in Elizabeth Holmes, and with um, with Super Pump, you've got a self described asshole in Travis Galanick. And it's not that Adam Newman and Rebecca Newman don't have asshole tendencies, and I think as the show goes on, you get to see many more of those. Um, but especially meeting Adam Newman in the first episode is this like striving hustler who just wants a project to succeed, and then Rebecca as uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's overshadowed cousin, which we'll certainly talk more about. Um, you feel for them and you kind of get where they're coming from, even though they're totally insane. And I think these performances from Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway, which I love, I think really go a long way toward that, too. I agree. I 
I was captivated because in spite of what you think of Adam and of Rebecca, I believe in their love so much. <laughs> so it, it was oddly to me a little bit like a, there's an undercurrent of love story there, um, which I was intrigued by. And that's, you know, in part because of the chemistry between Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway, both of whom have said that in in talking to Adam and Rebecca and learning about them, they they really believe in that love. So I was struck by that. And I also like the idea that we're in New York, we're not in Silicon Valley for this one. Yeah. So we get a different perspective, which I appreciate. Wait, did you say that they interviewed Adam and Rebecca Newman for this show? I, I realized I should have done my research, but I didn't know that. Well, Jared, Jared tracked down Adam and he wasn't going to tell anyone about it. He visited all the Newmans at their home, but Adam in an interview confessed that Jared came over. So the cat was sort of out of the bag in that sense. But Jared Leto, did you know, has his own tech history. He was an early investor in YouTube and Airbnb and was profiled by the, by the Wall Street Journal in 2017, he said he cold calls startups all the time and is always hunting for that <laughs> next acquisition, which is just a wonderfully interesting, you know, addition to his resume. But I thought that was fascinating. Anne was a little bit more, I think she implied that she had maybe had a conversation, but she had definitely had conversations with people around Rebecca. She said she had a few mutual friends in common with her. Um, and uh, the idea of Jarrett. A cold call from Jared Leto sounds like something that could happen on Super Pumped if he wasn't currently on a different show, right? Doesn't that oh my fit gosh. into I would, world? I would love that story arc where Jared Leto appears on Super Pumped as himself. <laughs> <laughs> or you, you, uh, some poor actor has to take on the unenviable task of playing Jared Leto, which like, how do you do that? Yeah, um, the energies can never match. But something that I think is so interesting about We Crashed as it relates to these two other shows you know, on Super Pumped, you have the brash, you know, macho kind of thing. And, you know, and I think that that's reflective of of the, the showrunners, you know, their previous work on Billions. Um, the Dropout is a, a little more sensitive, more of a kind of moral thriller in a way. And then mm. we crashed because there's, I mean, we're seeing, you know, Rebecca, especially in episode three, moving into this wellness language, this spiritual language, there's something softer about it, which it doesn't, that doesn't mean that there's not like bad things happening. It just kind of is coming at it from a different angle, especially as this company, as we see it on the show. And in episode two, uh, Adam has this lovely soliloquy at a JP Morgan event about like, we're not, you know, selling you a uh, work or something. We're selling you a life, you know, basically. And, and everyone gets sort of enwrapped by that idea. Um, and so I like the way that this show links into other trends in like millennial and Gen Z culture, which is like that kind of woo-woo sort of world in a way that the other two shows don't. Because Elizabeth Holmes is is much, much more of a pragmatist. A liar, yes, but like mm. she wouldn't get caught up in all this spiritual stuff the way that um, the Newmans do. Yeah, we've talked about the needle drops on the dropout already, um, but We Crash really has its share of them. And, and less like mid-aughts, like Elizabeth Holmes in college, and more like MGMT to put you in 2009. And I, I don't know if you guys felt personally attacked by those period piece markings, but I sure did. <laughs> I love in the first episode, aren't they listening to a song in the car, and then the assistants all have it queued up once they walk into the office itself? It's oh, like yeah. A, it's amazing. Well, and it's... 
it's yeah, and it's Katy Perry's roar. And uh, we saw in the dropout last week where um, Firework played a really major role for the Walgreens execs. So um, is Katy Perry the patron saint of these shows? Yeah, well, certainly the patrons, one of the patron saints of that era. You know, we're talking yes. about the late aughts, the early 2010s. And I think that, you know, we're all in our 30s, late 30s, um, for some of us anyway. Um, and I think that, like, that is something really interesting that both The Dropout and uh, We Crash do in particular, which is like, it, yes, it's about these scandals and these larger-than-life characters, but it's also just about, like, what it in some ways felt to be cognizant of, like, media and tech and those those huge burgeoning worlds, like, at that time, you know, so it's about these specific people, but it's all about it's more like this is what culture was sort of pointed at. And so you have to have the Katy Perry's or the MGMT songs to kind of score that because it really grounds you in, in that in that sense memory, I suppose. Yeah. Right. So we crashed. There's such unbridled excess. It's, it's such a stark counterpoint to Theranos and Elizabeth's world, which feels so constricted and regimented. Well, because their their aims were different. You know, right. like, I think it would be interesting, you know, if we could talk a little bit about like, well, we can also talk about the performances, you know, because Jared Leto's doing a lot, Amanda Seyfried's doing a lot. And we see her, you know, she's really developing the performance in episode five even further. Like, what do you think the motivations, how do they differ, I guess, in your minds? Like, because they both kind of want to do a little bit of world domination, but but maybe that, that that's sourced um, in different places for them. That's interesting because they do both have this wild-eyed sense of, like, they'll look someone in the eye and be like, I will change the world. And and they mean it. And they convince people that they mean it. And their demeanors really couldn't be more different and, you know, the way that they're running their workplaces. But it's it, maybe it's that desire to dominate the world. Like, that's the Silicon Valley theme. It's something that Travis Kalanick on Super Pumped has, too, where they're just so convinced of their power and how persuasive they could be and have this incredible success as a result of it. And for some of them, like hoodwink people into thinking they really know what they're doing. Right. And Elizabeth, she was sort of micro focused on Theranos, but Adam, at least reading about him, seems maybe broader in his delusions on top of WeWork. He had all of these. He talked about wanting to become the president of the world, the prime minister of Israel. He wanted to live forever and was investing in these companies to extend um the duration of human life. Um, I, I guess he had more ambitions, more out of the box ambitions, maybe. Yeah. And, and they don't seem to have been, I mean, spoiler alert, sorry, but in, in real life, like they, now that they're out of the company, Rebecca and Adam, from everything I've read, including a piece in Vanity Fair by Rachel Dodes, like they haven't really stopped with that ideation, you know, like, like, I don't think that this season of television is going to be about them, like having the come to Jesus moment and learning that, like, okay, maybe I need to scale back my ambition. I I, I think that this, it's actually a different story, um, which is kind of interesting. And I, I love the way, though, that, that Leto plays it is that, like, and, and the way that they frame Rebecca as she's kind of our surrogate in that, like, we watch in the first episode as she's sort of won over by him. And mm-hmm. we, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I kind of was too. He's charming, even though I know mm-hmm. that behind the scenes there was like, you know, a lot of sort of megalomania happening. Oh, yeah. That's what's so fascinating. And if you read the Wall Street Journal's write-ups of him, even these executives who hated him, his management style at the end, couldn't help concede that he did have this this special charisma and charm and was incredible about motivating employees, even if 
you know, his his management overall was totally misguided. Um, whereas I don't, it's just interesting, again, then to flip back to Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, and she's trying to cheer on her her employees in a much different way. Um, and There's this. Oh, go ahead, Julie. Oh, no, no, go on. There's a scene in the first episode of We Crashed, and I don't want to just like quote all my favorite lines, but it's tempting to because there's so many good moments. But there's a scene that's really only in there to show you how charming Adam is, where he's in the elevator with a neighbor and he's like, hey, you want to come over for Chinese food? And then just eats the guy's dinner and gets the guy to bring over the beer and the soy sauce. And like he gets absolutely what he wants. And the guy's like, oh, OK, sure. It's, it's amazing. He, yeah. It, and you read the books about him and that was a real life experience that helped um, inform him of what he wanted to develop with WeWork. He had moved into this Tribeca apartment with his sister, who was an actual supermodel and was like booking photo shoots in Russian Vogue. And he couldn't understand. He had moved to America when he was 22, and he just didn't understand why people in her apartment building weren't friendly. So they really did start this contest about who could befriend more neighbors in the building. And she did win because she was a supermodel. But he <laughs> said, or at least he was very good about it, incorporating that thread in his narrative when he would then talk to investors about how that was how like, the idea for WeWork and that communal setting sort of developed. Julie, you've done a lot of you. You've opened the door, I think, to sort of the not we're not going to fact check, but I'm just sort of curious how we crashed um, aligns with the, with the, the truth. Um, there's some stuff in this this these three first three episodes that like like you like like the, the the competition about meeting neighbors like that's fascinating to know that that was actually real but then you get to the third episode where they're at camp and this horrible i mean successive series of things happens with rebecca but that didn't look fun richard that, that summer <laughs> yeah. camp didn't look like a good time to you <laughs> yeah i mean everything up till the listening session <laughs> um <laughs> and i found an article from a new york times writer i believe it's marissa metzler that was at camp in 2014 so, but it's not, you know, obviously she didn't go leave and work, go work for WeWork, I don't think. So it, it's a lot of, I feel like a lot of that episode is maybe invented. I want to interrupt for a second, though, because I did look at that article, too. And there's a shot of a canoe full of beer that is replicated exactly in the episode. So <laughs> oh there, there, are, there are some details that I know are real. That's incredible. I read another, I think it was Wall Street Journal. They said that at, there was another retreat in London and they the bartender was giving out free rosé, but not by the glass, by the bottle. He was just handing out these bottles. Um, it was incredible. And you you look at the excess and all the tequila that they were spending like as a line item in the budget, all that, I think it was 1942 tequila. Just, it was incredible, incredible excess. Um, I, I don't have more details about the exact retreat um, I did find that I think it was in 2018 at a retreat where she said the line about a big part of being a woman is to help men manifest their calling. Um, and the Marissa Meltzer article you're talking about, Richard, is in 2014. So I, I think there's, you know, it's all true, but there's some maybe some timeline budging happening there. Just to make so it she, make in fact, said it much later in the WeWork. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They were even more worse. powerful yeah. when she said it. But his drinking did get so out of control that he did pair back in later years at WeWork and they credited Rebecca with helping do a lot of that just because he was in full-blown party mode in in the first part of that that era there's this story about oh in 2016 adam had to fire seven percent of the WeWork staff a few weeks later he held an all-hands meeting to talk about the staff cuts to everybody and sort of buoy morale after that so he had this huge speech i'm sure it was very charming and invigorating as leto portrays all those speeches to be 
And then everyone received tequila shots that were passed out in plastic shot glasses from um, from employees serving trays with trays of these shots. And again, this is two weeks after 7% of the staff were laid off. And as if that wasn't tone deaf enough, he then introduced Daryl McDaniels of Run DMC to come in and play a set for staff. And some of these staff members are quoted as saying that they were just incredulous and shocked and confused. And then others just embraced the moment and were doing the tequila shots and dancing along. So I think, you know, there is an accuracy to the tone deafness and that sort of millennial excess. Does that make sense? I don't want to uh, spoil the show for anybody, but we we may see more of that moment in later episodes of We Crashed. Ooh, enticing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, watching, you know, at this point with the dropout, we are so far down the rabbit hole with that, that I don't really have to do the thought experiment of like, would I buy it? Because like, I think really only the diehards at that point were, or the ones who had a ton of money invested were. But I think what's something that's so poignant about these first three episodes of We Crashed is that like, you know, the third episode begins with this sort of montage of this young woman who's a new employee, and it's her going through like the, 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 I mean, it's basically like, I don't know, a year in college, almost like in just condensed where she's so excited, meets all these new friends, drinking, partying, then gets tired, and then becomes really burnt out and disillusioned. And then at the very end, just kind of buys back in. But I, I, I think they really were the Newmans, at least as depicted on this show, tapping into a, a very common want at that time which was like i don't want to do the conventional thing i i mean I, maybe it was hastened by like instagram you're trying to live a life that looks aesthetically pleasing but like i don't know do, do you either of you think you would have been like into this whole scene because there were parts of it where i thought oh absolutely not i wouldn't want to be at that camp but other mm. aspects of it i mean i used to work at gawker and there was something of that feel to it in 2008 or 9 you know so I'm curious about how how that that reads to you to you too. Yeah, you think about like the loneliness of being young in New York too, right? About trying to find your place, you know, and having a workplace that's full of people who look just like you. Um, and that post 2008, you know, culture from which WeWork comes, where they're able to get all this uh, really cheap office space because of the recession. Um, people, a lot of people were just kind of searching around for something. I definitely think. I would have been susceptible to it. And, you know, we I mean, Richard, you and I lived in New York in this period, like, because we could have gone and worked for WeWork and we didn't. Um, so maybe maybe we're smarter or maybe, you know, that it just in, it changed one thing in my life and I could have wound up there. Oh my, what a missed opportunity for you both. I would love to see that <laughs> sliding glass or sliding doors version of, of your your lives at that moment. But I, I feel <laughs> the same way to, to be in a city that big and to feel that alone. There is something sexy about being surrounded by people your age in an environment like that and adam's charisma was just seemed so infectious i don't know that i would have been able to resist he would end these these speeches to his staff saying that he wanted to really change the world and end world hunger and i i can imagine being an impressionable 20 something thinking that you know it's it's good, nice to be a part of something big like that. It was also, it was interesting speaking to Jared about it because he said that one of the key elements he was able to bring to the performance that he doesn't think maybe another actor would have been able to was those communication skills from the stage because Jared has all hmm. that experience on stage uh, um, singing with his band 30 Seconds to Mars. 
So he said that there was something and it, that to him was one of the most interesting and fascinating elements of Adam's appeal and charisma was his ability to speak to those masses of people like he's talking to them one on one. Can we talk about Jared Leto's contacts and uh, what it does? <laughs> oh, I would love to. Because I think it's it makes a huge difference and i think he's really good on this show and like i had mixed feelings about him in house of gucci um but i think the transformation really works it does i mean look we'll just put it on the table he is significantly older (laughs) than uh (laughs) adam newman is at this time in history um but i think something about the you know jared leto's inherent oddness which he puts to great use in some things and then another things it's a little bit harder to 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 get on his wavelength but like that that sort of outsider big dreamer oddball but 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 with the warmth the sort of inviting you know charisma um is a natural fit for this i don't know what adam newman was like in real life i've watched some interviews with him on youtube and and you know leto's getting the voice right the kind of bearing right um but yeah but it does that that look that intensity those contact lenses like there's something really creepy about it, but also at the same time, it's vampiric. It's like I've been glamored, you know, <laughs> like I recognize that the thing is bad, but then all of a sudden I forget that. And and then here I am at camp, you know, <laughs> I, face I down in the lake. <laughs> I would be too distracted by the blueness of his eyes. So I sort of needed these shields, the, these contact lenses to shield me from that. And you think if he was as good looking as Jared Leto, even though Jared Leto was older, like he wouldn't have struggled so much in the early days. Like there, there's there's something about that that paves the path. Maybe. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think that that there, there's a kind of there's an echo there with Rebecca Paltrow Newman, where she's got this impossibly glamorous beautiful old you know older cousin who's a famous actor i mean you know and 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 you know rebecca newman is a plenty of you know she's a pretty woman but like i i think that something about adam's confidence to sort of you know stand 150 percent in what he has and just let that be enough or more than enough i think that must be a that that in the, the, the psychology of the show at least like that's that's appealing to her because she keeps trying and failing and here's this wagon that not only she can she can hitch her star to but the wagon is saying no no sit next to me (laughs) you know Mm, like mm -hmm. how inviting for someone who's really been struggling to find their place and especially in reference to um their cousin who i I was reading with about when um when rebecca paltrow was at college everyone on campus knew knew her as gwyneth paltrow's cousin and that Mm. that that you know that messes with you after a while i would imagine and Gwyneth has spoken about Rebecca, which I find so fascinating because I, Rebecca was born almost a decade after her three siblings, which I feel like informs a little bit maybe how she became who she is, at least depicted as being in this show. So Gwyneth said that she was to her family like this beautiful surprise princess. She was very much like a gift to the family and treated as such. So then to go out into the world as an adult having been coddled that way and and not treated, I guess, like your cousin Gwyneth. I could definitely understand the hurt in that. And Gwyneth has also spoken about Adam. She said, I adore Adam, but he's a handful. It felt like Adam could explode mm. at any moment when Rebecca wasn't around, which I just thought was interesting. Um, do we? Is this where we get into detail about her um, her checkoff performance in episode two, oh, which God. I just I loved more the second time around? One of my favorite things I've seen on TV all year. You you are braver than me. So I had watched the episode <laughs> a couple weeks ago and then rewatched it so we could do this uh, episode of the podcast. 
And when I got to that, I said, nope, and hit the 10 second, 10 second, 10 second. (laughs) (laughs) Once was enough. I mean, that is devastating. Do we know, did that actually happen? Or some version of it? I know she was a a struggling actor and had made a couple short films on her own, but I'm I'm curious about that specific production with Julie White as the director. I don't know about that production. I know that she filmed a feature with Rosario Dawson in a WeWork office. Whoa! (laughs) Katie, do you know? Do you know about the Chekhov performance? I'll find this out. Okay. I I don't. I mean, honestly, I was just thinking about how it would drive my car at the Oscars. Like, it's just quite a, quite a season for Chekhov. For Chekhov, really. that's true. <laughs> but also, I mean, the way, like, the, the Russian accent thing in the performance is its own level of cringe. But also her, like, her entitled swanning in being like, oh, hello, I'm going to give you all this money to make your theater. And then, oh, wait, you still want to do that? I'm over it. I'm moving on. Like, it's so funny. Anne Hathaway playing a bad actor, because I think she's a very good actor. And this proves it, because... That whole second episode that's kind of, it's called Masha, Masha, Masha. It's really Rebecca's episode. Like, from her getting married in that purple dress oh. um, to that Russian accent, I just think it's so flawless and such a great, like, you know, villain arrival for Rebecca in a way. I, I love the purple dress. I want to know if it really happened. I couldn't find any details. So if anybody who's listening was at that wedding, we would love to know whether that's true <laughs> or false. The million dollar check was real. I know that much. Um, which is kind of fascinating especially because um apparently at some point in her in rebecca paltrow newman crafting her mythos she started saying that she you know grew off grew up off a dirt road and a sort of tree house kind of thing and gwyneth paltrow actually has said in a magazine article of about rebecca like no they she grew up well off <laughs> like she, gwyneth paltrow <laughs> corrected the record on that um, which is Really interesting. But yeah, I mean, the, the the acting stuff, and then we see it again in episode three, where she's at the acting class, I, I presume, in Los Angeles, and she's doing the scene, it doesn't work, and then she taps into this rage over an ex-boyfriend. And But before that, when she's just doing the scene from the first time, Anne Hathaway is doing a really good job of playing someone who, like, isn't a good actor, but maybe in high school or even college was told, oh, yeah, she was pretty good, you know? Like, mm-hmm. she's not she's not awful, awful. She's not waiting for Guffman. And I think that's really hard to get right, and Hathaway nails it, probably because she spent so much time from childhood on, like, in theaters, you know, local theaters, Paper Mill Playhouse, New Jersey, all that, just absorbing maybe people like that, frankly. Yeah. So before we move over to a little bit of uh, The Dropout and Super Pumped, uh, Katie, you have an interview for us. Can you tell, the, tell us about that? Yeah. So we've been talking all this time about Adam and Rebecca Newman, but there was a co-founder of WeWork we have not mentioned yet. And, and with good reason, Miguel McKelvey uh, co-founded WeWork with Adam Newman and was really kind of the like quiet, I don't want to say brains behind the operation, but you know, you see him in the show played by Kyle Marvin you know, telling Adam to stop spending so much money and trying to handle Rebecca's PR crisis when she says that women are meant to support their husbands. Um, And he's such a warm, inviting person. And as I asked Kyle Marvin in this conversation, you kind of watch it being like, why is he in business with this guy? Like, what did he see in Adam Newman other than the charisma we all talk about? Um, so I talked to Kyle Marvin about it. And he is fascinating because he is an actor. Um, he had, But he also... Um, acted in and co-wrote a film that was at Cannes in 2019 called The Climb, and is currently directing the movie 80 for Brady with Tom Brady, Jane Fonda, Rita Moreno, Sally Field, and Lily Tomlin. So this guy's career is really going places. Wow. Um, So he's, yeah, I zoomed with him from his trailer on the set of that movie um, and, you know, talked to him about that that very wide range of career options and, um, and about Miguel McKelvey and how a guy like that winds up in this mess. So let's listen to it. I'm Claire Fallon. 
And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. So we're here to talk about the first three episodes of We Crash since they yeah. are all premiering um, at the same time on Apple. And we get through all three of these episodes and just this overwhelming sense of Miguel McKelvey as this really good guy. And my question for you and maybe the question of the entire series for you is how does someone like him wind up with Adam Newman in the first place? Did you come up with a good answer to that question for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the idea of success is intoxicating to anyone. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly when success comes in a partnership with someone else, you kind of assign the positive sort of way that things are going to either that person or you and that person together. And I think once you put your feet on that train, it's kind of hard to it's hard to get off, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, and I think that it's partially about the fact that, like, we, we see all of these events sort of from an exterior view where we can sort of be judgmental or, or not or whatever and look at this at a distance. But sometimes when you're in those things, you don't really see it, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because you're taking it incrementally until... You know, as the as the series shows, eventually you really do see it, and by then, you know, you've really. I mean, you see what's coming, what the the train that's already coming right at you. And I yeah. think it's more of that. I think it's more that the ideals of what they were talking about, co working and being together, and community and love and partying and all that stuff, sounds great. You know what I mean? It really sounds great. But when you put that up against giant scale and you put that up against time, uh, that's where I think things got a little off the rails. Yeah, and I feel like the power of the show, maybe especially in these first three episodes, is you're meeting Adam and Rebecca and, you know, to a lesser extent Miguel because he does seem like a solid person and you see all of their problems, but you're also won over by them at the same time. Like you see the, the power of charisma it really, it's it's real, you know? People can get talked into doing a lot of things. And I, I like the balance that the show is already striking of of rooting for them despite knowing the the train that's going to crash at the end of it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the that's the real interesting way to approach one of these stories because it's, it's easy to vilify these people. They've sort of already been lambasted by the media. So I think it's interesting to take a more nuanced approach to the characters. And it's something that Jared and Annie, you know, built into their performance and it organically sort of fit in mine and then fit in the story as we sort of explored it. Um, But I think it's the more interesting way to approach it, especially for people who aren't, you know, as hip to exactly what happened in all of the like details of the story. Mm -hmm. You can kind of get swept up in it in those first three episodes and and sort of find yourself on the journey and only to find yourself sort of struggling as you head into those you know episodes four five and six um struggling with the same issues they're struggling with which is like oh wait maybe this isn't what it appears you know what i mean maybe there's maybe there's other stuff going on that's not great you know yeah 
What is, what are your memories of this period of WeWork? I believe you were working at an ad agency at some point, maybe in the WeWork rise. So we're, we're in the New York media uh, creative landscape. Was WeWork on your radar? I was. Uh, oh, yeah. You mean me personally? I was just thinking yeah. of my character. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, yeah, I actually was. Yeah. Good job on your research. Uh, I was working in I was working in um, yeah commercial advertising. Um, and so I was in production. I mean, it was definitely around. It's so weird because a ton of my peers had WeWork spaces. Oh, I mean, yeah. It was sort of the space to go to if you were small and scrappy and were trying to do something. Um, particularly in LA and New York. So I had a, I've been in tons of WeWorks because mm-hmm. friends had stuff there. I never, I never had an office there. Um, but uh, yeah, I was so, I was very familiar with it. I wasn't as familiar with the crash and, or what was going on until obviously the news came out. And then I was like, oh, wow, this was, this was crazy. Um, yeah. But uh, I was definitely aware of it. I mean, it was part of the DNA of, of like young startup sort of companies or like young professionals you were totally. one degree of separation from a we work totally how was wrapping your head around all the like because the, the details of the crash especially are so financial and about like investments and you know i mean i guess everyone can understand spending more than you make but it is yeah. really complicated how it fell apart and how how was wrapping your head around all of that yeah i think it made sense to me once i sort of got the gist of it I mean, my, my sense, and I'm again, I'm not an expert in the technical machinations of what happened, but I think the real, the real, the real shame of what happened toward the end was more so that everyone had invested their time and energy in the stock itself, mm-hmm. and I think everyone sort of put all their eggs in the basket of what that IPO was going to be worth, and it's it's a dangerous thing to do because. When your company's valued at $47 billion, all of a sudden your tiny little stake becomes a fantasy. You know, I have 0.0001% and I'm still making a hundred grand, you know. So, so I think that that can get really intoxicating. Um, And I think that's what, I think that's what really creeped into everyone's subconscious was like, you just start making up those fantasy numbers. It's like, what Mm -hmm. would you do if you won the lottery? Except it's, it feels very tangible, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's really not tangible until an IPO hits until then it's all fantasy and speculation. And I think that sort of, and it's really intoxication is the right word. That intoxication that sort of seeped into the culture and seeped into Miguel and seeped into, you know, the other executives really, I think led people astray, you know? And, And I think that that, People really got hurt in that. Miguel got hurt in that. Um, uh, everyone sort of got hurt in that when that started creeping into their personal dynamics and into their psyches. Yeah. Um, so your background as an actor is really interesting to me. And I think for a lot of people watching the show, they have not seen you act before because you are not you are an actor, but you're a lot of other things, too. Yeah. Um, and you had the climb as this kind of big, you know, can success. And then the release came out during covid, which I'm sure was very strange for you, too. So were you trying to pursue other acting roles after that? How did that wind up? How did this wind up being uh, the next step for you after that movie? Yeah, I mean, acting is hard. You know, and and I wanted to pursue acting at a younger age and it just was not viable. I had a family and 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 it just didn't work out for our situation. And I I was trying to pursue work that um, I could make money at, to be honest. So I got into commercial producing and then commercial producing segued into 
uh, producing independent features. And then that segued into sort of writing and producing. And then that segued into um, the climb really was the first time I had mostly been producing up until then. Um, and that was finally a chance for me to cast myself and take a swing on myself. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And that that was afforded me an opportunity that most people don't get, uh, which is to like get a shot at it, get, you know, be a lead in a feature. And um, in a feature you have a lot of control over, you know, the, the movie have, that you yeah, want to make. Complete control over, which, yeah. was, which was really refreshing and complete control in the outcome and the tone and how I perform and and all those things. And that, that was really a luxury. And then, you know, I was pursuing acting. I was pursuing everything. We've been marching lots forward. We were writing a ton. We were producing other projects and documentaries and we were still moving all of our yardsticks forward. Uh, but I was definitely like, I want to act. And mm -hmm. people were still like, who, who is this guy? You know what I mean? <laughs> and even if people know who you are, it's still a challenging place to be um, because it's just hard. You know, it's hard to get a job. It's it, it's 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 a very slim um, sliver of, of actors who get to perform at this level. And so, um, you know, I was pursuing it and not succeeding as as most or not succeeding is the wrong word. I was pursuing it and not getting roles. Sure. As as a lot of um, actors do. And uh, and then this one came up uh, unexpected. You know, I, I did an audition just like I do all the auditions that come my way. And then it happened to, you know, it happened to lead to a role. So I, I find myself lucky again, I think, in this um, in that it, it's sort of luck combined with, you know, obviously your talent and what you bring to the table. But there's always an element of luck, I think. I mean, I did. I listened to a little bit of Miguel McKelvey, and you do sound like him. Like, I, you <laughs> you clearly did more research than I do. Like, do you think that that you? How much work did you have to do to really embody him, or do you really think that there was a, a resemblance there from the start? Yeah, I mean, there's a physical resemblance with help, which helps, um, and there's a sound resemblance, sort of, which helps. I mean, I I did different things during the performance, and to to manipulate myself a little bit more to be in both his cadence and his register. And sort of his jaw moves a little differently. So I would do exercises to sort of move my jaw mm. differently. And I had a sort of a set of things I would do before I performed um, each day to sort of orient my physical space into his particular space. Um, but it did. I could, didn't hurt. You know, it didn't hurt that I was a tall, weird dude from Oregon. <laughs> I was thinking about the Oregon thing. I, that was fascinating to me because his origin story in Oregon, I, I assume you didn't grow up on a commune, but you know, that's a, yeah, <laughs> that's a nice coincidence uh, for you. It was a great coincidence. I mean, I grew up, I grew up around a very tight knit community of mothers. So I did actually have a strange sort of the maternal thing really. I mean, my father was around, he worked a lot though and was gone often. So I, I remember being raised um, mostly by, you know, my mom and four other mothers who both had boys around the same age in our small town. And we sort of became a clique. The boys sort of became almost brothers to me. And, and so I was very much in line with sort of that orientation and could find pieces of it, if not as extreme as his as his upbringing was. Yeah. Um, so that was interesting. I mean, you're playing a real person who is a lot less well-known than Adam and Rebecca Newman. I mean, you're still clearly going through the efforts to really capture him. And I think you've been careful to say, you know, these are this is a version of the story. This is not trying to be documentary truth. But what do you what do you owe a person when you're playing a real person in that way? How much time do you spend thinking about that? Yeah, it's, I mean, the the I don't think it's a good place to be to say you owe anyone anything, because I think that's just a rough place to get uh, as an actor. I think the the best thing I could do was to sort of assimilate everything I knew about him as a person 
and and represent that as honestly as I thought fit for the role. Mm-hmm. So there, there is like I, there are liberties. There's liberties taken in pieces of the script, which I was aware of, you know, because I understood my backstory, pretty detailed backstory. I mean, I, I built back a pretty detailed outline of exactly the, the chain of events and those kind of things. And not everything lined up because it doesn't make for good cinema or, you know, you'd have to put 40 scenes in where it'd be better as one scene, you know? Mm-hmm. So there are inherently in, in telling stories, you consolidate and you simplify or you change elements to sort of suit your needs. And to me, I think that I was more incumbent. I was more, I, I felt more obligated to play the character correctly. Mm-hmm. Than, than I did to try and find a sense of like complete authenticity because I don't think I could ever do that. I think that's, it's weird to say I could be another person. You know what I mean? Because, I, because I'll never be another person. I can only be uh, an actor representing what I think that person represents in the story. Can I assume you have not heard from the real Miguel or anyone else in the show has? No, I haven't. I Would you haven't. want to? I always thought it'd be interesting. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if they want to talk to me. Um, I don't know what their sensibilities are with it, but I'm completely open to it. I mean, I, I find the whole experience of creating art to be incredibly thrilling and and sort of a creative endeavor. And I feel like fundamentally they're very creative people, all of them. And I think it would be an interesting It'd be an interesting conversation to be had, but I'm not yeah. pursuing it because it's. I feel like that's stepping outside of the realm of privacy, which I feel like is. I, I would like to respect. Yeah, so you make a you make a movie, The Climb. It's completely within your control. Pandemic mm-hmm. hits, you're auditioning for things, and you wind up, you know, say on the set for the third episode, the summer camp episode, with it seems like thousands of extras. You know, it's still a pandemic, so maybe it wasn't really. But you know, as you as you step into this role and the size of this production, like, what is that like for you, having been making films as long as you have and been involved in them? What what shift was making We Crash like for you? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things. One, coming into it just focusing on acting i mean in the other one i was i wrote it i produced it like really produced it and acted in it so like my arrival to set would be you know at 5 a.m and i'd be trying to figure out where to fucking land the truck so i don't know if i can swear i'm trying to figure out where (laughs) i land the truck you know what i mean and like and stressed out about that and being like well what's happening with art and we're missing this thing and this is not what the frame looks like and we can't lay dolly track and then it's like all right now i'm acting and 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 that's like a crazy experience. Yeah. Um, and then oh, and like rewriting lines and figuring it all out. And then when I was on this one, it was like great. I I got in a you know I got in a transpo vehicle and I was driven to this place and I was I had like a a trailer which is a novelty for us <laughs> and independent film and, and then like moved from the trailer to the set and and that I think was it was just a different experience, you know, and, but it was nice to focus on just acting. You know, I showed up mm-hmm. and I, all my attention, all my preparation went towards that thing. That being said, I was like, not at all prepared for the scale and scope of this. Thing. And I should have <laughs> been, but like when you, when you step under a set that big, it's, I mean, summer camp was insane. Yeah. Was insane. I mean, it looks it like, crazy. I remember getting on the, I remember getting on the van and then we were driving to set and we just insert, we just like entered this world. There was like, giant pools and thousands of beer bottles littering the ground and like tents as far as I could see, literally rows of tents as far as I could see. And then giant tent. And I was like, what is going <laughs> on? You know what I mean? And it was a little humbling. It was humbling. There it was humbling walking into the set they built for the, lo- for the, for the actual 
office. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's three stories. I mean, it's two stories, but it's there's a middle floor. And then outside, it's a three-story waterfall with trees and buildings. Like, it was just the, the scope and scale of the thing was was unreal. So it helped me in that sense in that I had no choice but to be like, one, I had to deliver because I was like, damn, if I don't deliver. <laughs> I, I it's really expensive to, to reset this take if I don't yeah, if I really flood my line. It'd be really expensive. And and also, and and then two, it was like, I just found myself lost in it because I was like, well, I guess I really am at summer camp. Like I'm, I literally walked around the set and I was like, I'm at summer camp. And that really helped me get into it because I really felt myself in all these places. So it was yeah. uh, it was a blessing all around. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you're now uh, in production on 80 for Brady, which I don't, you know, I assume you don't want to talk too much about. But you're is this the first film you've directed, directed? Yes. Okay. Um, so how has that transition been? The, this, this, the climb to We Crash to this, it feels like a very uh, fascinating transition to me. I'm sure in, in reality, it's many more turns in that process. But uh, what, what's that been like? Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because everything feels like it's all happening at once. And, and it's not really ever how it happens. Like this has been in production. Mean, we've been working on this for five or six months. So like it, it all sort of has been, it didn't all just happen at once magically there was a tremendous amount of work put in on all of these things um but it is interesting shifting gears it's funny because everything informs everything else truly like uh, producing and especially producing independent film where you're very creatively involved in the process it's not just the technical side of you know either the finances or you know the logistics you're really involved in the creative choices of all these things and it's so intimate and personal i sort of got to learn from the experiences of other directors whose films i've helped make um Mm -hmm. and that's informed how i how i work acting has informed how i deal with actors um so all of the things sort of feed into each other you know this is a this is a big production that we're on and and so and and i'm i feel like i'm constantly learning all the time to be honest i try and really consume knowledge in real time, especially from other human beings, because I feel like there's really a tradition of of passing on knowledge person to person mm-hmm. that that is that is really powerful. And it's not to say I don't read books or I don't try and avail myself of how to do things, but there is always something to be learned. And so I, I'm doing my best guiding this ship and and helping my actors to their best performance. Um, while at the same time, you know, always learning and always trying to improve myself and the, my process and and how I create images, you know, and how I create performance. Is there something you, specific you can think of that you learn, you know, working so closely with Jared Leto in this performance? You know, it's, a, it's really transformative in a lot of ways. There's a lot of, you know, accent work and contacts and wigs and either as an actor yourself or as a director, you know, acting alongside someone who's doing that kind of transformation. Do you learn something from that? Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the th- there's a lot there's a lot I learned from both Jared and Annie. I mean, both of them are consummate professionals, and the other actors on set. I mean, we were the the deck was stacked. We we talk about Jared and Annie, but the the deck is stacked on talented actors. Yeah, America Ferrera is coming for listeners who haven't yeah, seen America the fourth episode. Yeah, she's amazing. Henley's coming. You know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of incredible. Anthony Edwards is there. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the whole thing is incredible down to the assistants all the assistants are like really talented well-heeled actors um so there was a lot to learn from everyone i think i think from jared and and annie specifically i think the the, the real discipline and and dedication to the craft 
is like the level at which the detail at which they would go into every character and every choice and the detail they demanded not only from the directors and the writers but the other performers around them to align to those things but the detail they would the detail that they would uh apply to those things are something that i really learned from and it's something that i could sort of take across the boards is you know to feel especially as a director to make sure that i am equipped to answer that level of question that oh, level of detail in a scene where they're saying you know the scene is simple it's you're having this one little conversation in a boardroom but it's like what's the motivation what's the blocking motivation what's the you know what's the what are all the characters sort of things doing what are the dynamics at play and 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 really focusing on that level of detail and i can't say i'm perfect at it but you know the, the just knowing that that's the level at which these professionals work really makes me you know up made me in particular for this up my game so i was as prepared as possible yeah, and then you go and work with you know Tom Brady, one of the most famous people on the planet, which is yeah, I'm sure an entirely different thing. Tomlin, Jane Fonda, Sally <laughs> Field, Rita Moreno. I mean, people that that whose experience I can't even fathom. You know what yeah. I'm saying? As performers and human beings, each one of those people holds uh, treasures beyond belief in, in their performance and in their soul. Yeah. Are you, are you surprised that this is where you've landed, you know, uh, three years since that can? Like, does it, does this feel like a logical place that you would have wound up? Because it seems no. pretty incredible to me. Yeah, it doesn't seem logical at all. But <laughs> what is logic these days? <laughs> well, it, if someone asks you what you do, do you say you're a actor, director, producer, writer? Do you have one clean answer for that? I, I don't. I'm always confused by that question. <laughs> I always just say I make film, you know. That's- I make film and and I'm doing something in there, uh, some piece of something in there, but it's, it's hard. It's also like, I'm trying to be a little humble here. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm a novice in, in all the things you've listed in the sense that like my track record is just beginning and I intend to, you know, I intend to be very successful in all of those things. Um, But a little me has to continue to stay humble until Till I get a little further along. <laughs> uh, well, back to recrash maybe for the last question. Uh, uh, yeah. Is it for people who've you know seen the first three episodes, is there anything that that we should look forward to that you get to be part of on the show? Either uh, you know a big crazy moment like camp, or just a, a moment that you're proud of. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like. I think it gets really exciting when uh, when money starts coming in, and before it sort of gets sketchy. Mm-hmm. There's sort of this playful wildness that seeps in. And, and you know, when you give young, wild, naive people resources, things get a little wild. And and those were some of the scenes I really enjoyed as a performer because it was like we were just letting loose and stuff happened. And, you know, we would we would scream and uh, like things. It was just wild on set for those for those episodes. And to me, that was sort of the most fun and then things sober up, which is also fun to watch. But yeah. as a performer, you know, things got very sober very quickly. Um, so as, as well, they probably should. As they should. As <laughs> absolutely they should have. Well, let's shift away from the Newmans uh, and head over to, to the West Coast. Um 
in in episode five of the dropout and episode three of super pumped we see more of the wheels come off of more of the buses i would say uh (laughs) in the case of the dropout which has i i mean the most emotional episode yet i would say uh at least from one perspective um you have an actual really serious consequence uh maybe not exactly directly caused by elizabeth and the con she's pulling but certainly related to it um i'm talking of course of you know ian gibbons uh dying by suicide uh in this episode um did did you both know that that was coming or was did were you, did either of you manage to be surprised by this uh revelation i remember reading a story in vanity fair uh, a, a while back in which they had interviewed Ian's wife and she she spoke about the death and how uh, Elizabeth um, didn't reach out after except to have someone um, ask for the computer back and other other property from Theranos. So I had vaguely recalled that, but this this, of course, reminded me of that tragic, tragic turn. What about you, Katie? Yeah, I had. I had spoiled myself on Wikipedia by accident, kind of watching the earlier episodes. And I had read Bad Blood, the John Kerry Rue book, so I had clearly just forgotten it. Um, but I think as this episode goes on, you kind of sense it coming, right? Um, yeah. You know, knowing that, you know, this inc- the the most sympathetic character on the dropout, I think, and and knowing that something is really poisoned from the root as Theranos, um, they, they're incompatible and that that was going to end badly. And it, it's so sad and really well well played, I think. You see, you know, in the the third episode of of We Crash, like the, this this young woman who's going through the motion, you know, and she's she becomes sort of the one of the vampire victims uh, of the Newmans, and then here we have someone who's really closely associated with Elizabeth and with Theranos, who not exactly she didn't do it on purpose, obviously, really, you know, demoralize him and and, and alienate him, but like she kind of has to she has to step over a lot of people you know especially the people who start questioning what she's doing and um i think the chilling thing is knowing that theranos still move forward past this is that it's going to affect her for a moment but like she's going to snap back into the con pretty quickly and i think probably already has by the end of the episode yeah yeah that moment of her with the finger puppet you know where she's she has gone so far ahead of her skis that she's made these ridiculous puppets for kids getting their blood tested at the theranos thing where she knows the thing doesn't work and she's just kind of staring at that rather than dealing with this very real emotional consequence. I think it it tells you so much about where her head is and isn't in that moment. Yeah. And we also see her meet with uh, marketing people, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, we're, yeah, okay, the company, great, great, great. But we're more interested in you, you know? And I, I'm, I guess that's kind of where that whole cult of public cult of personality started. Obviously, within the company and with Walgreens, that people are plenty in, in her board of directors. They're already well and truly invested um, under false pretenses in the Holmes narrative. But now it's going to start more and more turning outward. She's going to be written about. And and I, I'm really c- intrigued to see how that unfolds on this show and how we see them scrambling to sweep things under the rug and, and all that, because this is really when the House of Cards starts falling, is when there's just too much public attention on this and it can't withstand that scrutiny. And it's interesting how she reacts at that moment, because she she I don't think she's being falsely modest when she's like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm not the face of this thing. I think she she does feel uncomfortable there. And you compare it to on, on Super Pump this week where Travis Kalanick is like sitting in a waiting room at a VC firm and kind of like peacocking his way to to intimidate all the other people. Like he is so happily using himself and his face and his hair 
to market himself and his company. And Elizabeth is is not there yet. And, you know, maybe she never was. She had the whole uniform, but who knows how comfortable she ever felt. I would love to get a psychiatry team to evaluate the psyches of these three founders. I'm just endlessly fascinated <laughs> by what their breakdown must be. Just the the... I, I don't even know how you you survive something like Ian Gibbons' death and then pivot on that and run a company. I feel like there must be some element of delusion necessary to run a company and and pursue a tech startup like that. But it's a lot. Well, they're also these these people are so good at compartmentalizing and rationalizing and just being like, well, yeah, that was related, but you know, but they they they, they snared themselves. They made the mistakes that you know we we see in Super Pumped when um, John Zimmer, the Lyft, one of the Lyft founders, says to Bill Gurley, he's like, he keeps you keep giving him Travis these wins, and he thinks he deserves them. And when there's one loss, he's gonna feel like it's the end of the world, and he's drowning, and he's gonna step on you to get above, you know, get mm-hmm. to the surface, essentially. And like we don't see Elizabeth doing that that ruthlessly exactly, but like. She is still doing it because mm-hmm. nothing can can distract her or Kalanick or the Newmans from the narrative. And I, I think it's 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 really scary to watch. And I think in this episode of The Dropout, it's like I for me, it was the pivot point of like, OK, now I'm I've moved pretty far away from from empathy or sympathy um, mm-hmm. with Elizabeth. Right. It's a real turning point. And you've got William H. Macy, who is uh, not more despicable than her, maybe, but pretty despicable as, uh, as you know, Fuse, the guy who's suing her, and how he just kind of gets keeps getting punched down by David Boyce, who's eating Cheez-Its in that last scene, which I love Cheez-Its. I'm right there with him on that. Um, but just contrasting those characters, and you might have been rooting for Elizabeth before, but you you see how she's crossed a line um, in beating him at, by the end of that episode. And then Laurie Metcalf comes back in. Thank God. Oh, she's the best. <laughs> yeah, oh. yeah. What a welcome respite to have to have her back in. Um, but yeah, the Richard Fuse stuff is funny because you know he's complaining to his wife, and he's like, "If she'd only just ask me for help, you know." And, and it's a it's a sort of more high minded way of, of it's like you know the mafia guy walking in and be like, eh, "Nice place you got here. It would be a shame if it burned down." Basically, he said, <laughs> "Oh, you have an idea. Well, I've not patented things, so now you have to to do ball with you know play ball with me." And it, so, but he of course again compartmentalizing can rationalize it away and say, oh, no, 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 I was just, you know, here to be a listening ear and and offer wise counsel. And she slapped my hand away, which is not at all what happened, or at least what we saw happen earlier in in the season. Yeah. Knowing that ability to compartmentalize and to sort of manipulate people, I, again, would love to see a reality show where you put these tech founders on an island together and they somehow have to battle it out. But I would just love to see them interface with each other in in any any scenario oh fully and i think that's what's a really kind of you know the i for me the most electrifying part of this week super pumped was this tete-a-tete between kalanick and zimmer and then zimmer and Gurley, where because we're so in the uber bubble on this show you know this episode is really concerned with lyft but we're still in the inner sanctum of uber we're still following travis around and then to have another you know big time tech entrepreneur enter the picture and they actually dialogue with one another and we're able mm. to point to one and say, I think he's a little better. <laughs> it's really <laughs> fascinating. So I fully endorse the tech billionaire survivor, Julia, that you just pitched. Perfect. Yeah. Although credit to the uh, the other moment of Super Pumped where he meets with Larry Page at Google and it's like this highly anticipated meeting and it's um, Ben Feldman 
Uh, E.K. Ginsburg from Mad Men is how he will always live out of my heart in a really wild wig uh, that seems very true to life, um, who's, you know, silent throughout this entire meeting, basically, until he decides to talk. And you see Travis kind of on the back foot, which is not a common position for him, and really trying to win this guy over. I think that brings out a more interesting aspect of his character, if not necessarily someone who we want to root for in that scene. Well, because even people like that have a hero, you know, there there's someone above mm-hmm. them, you know, for I, I don't know that Travis is so single minded like Elizabeth is like she's Steve Jobs. That's her, you know, I love that scene in, in the dropout where she's like, you know, since we lost him and they're like, did you know him? And she's like, well, no, not personally, <laughs> you know, um, tra- Travis might not have exactly that one hero, but certainly a Larry Page, you know, who is worth I just I, I looked it up over a hundred billion dollars at this point. Um, yeah. would be someone he would be uh, willing to prostrate a little bit in front of, you know, um, he's not. And, he, but, and then, of course, then I I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much psychology into this. But then because of that and, and riding high on the, 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 the fact that it worked, they got this huge investment from Google uh, Ventures, then turning and really slapping down his puny competitor you know I, I think those are really connected on on the same short line mm-hmm. i'd go work for lyft are we going to get to see amanda seafried uh, joseph gordon levitt and jared leto have a conversation together a round table about playing these these <sighs> entrepreneurs i would love to see that i mean we do work at vanity fair and vanity fair gets very uh frequently shouted out later on a week crash so um are we just giving ourselves this assignment to make this dream come true <laughs> the real trick is to get them all together with the actual people and <laughs> uh, see how that plays out <laughs> we'll start with the actors and then slowly yeah. introduce the the real folks and then all six of them can have an insane conversation with each other because you we wait until elizabeth holmes finishes her jail sentence and then we'll um we'll get there who would you trust the most with your investment Ooh, i guess uber is the yeah. one that is still solvent you know i mean i guess we work is still solvent too but throughout some some weird crashes in there. What about you? But I think the thing about that, that's a good question, Julie, because we've seen now three episodes and, and really in this episode where Gurley now is on the outs, his access card has been shut off because he had the temerity to like not even go rogue, but just sort of speak autonomously about his own knowledge set at South by Southwest and say, you know, we're going to have some dead unicorns. Like we've seen routinely that Travis is awful and really difficult to uh, be you know, even amicable business partners with because he's, you know, an egomaniac who flies off the handle and all that stuff. And and, and so, you, I don't know, I find myself being like, so wait, why would anyone do business with him? And the thing is, because they did have provable growth, you know, mm-hmm. Uber for all of its sins. And, you know, certainly one of those big sins is is how drivers are compensated was on a, a, a path to genuinely returning investment to people, you know, whereas the other two we work, which is still functioning, but like was were operating at a massive loss for a long time. And I think probably, and still is. Um, and obviously Theranos was just, you know, a complete snake oil thing. So yes, it, it, it when, if push came to shove of those three things that Uber, like, you know, even though Travis is an asshole, like he'll, he would make me money, I guess. Julie, does it make you glad you're not super wealthy and don't have a hundred million dollars to give to any of these people? I mean, I guess there that gives me one one perk to not being super wealthy. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't. That's one problem I don't have to deal with. But it is just interesting to me that these investors, like Bill Gurley, have to evaluate. And again, they are seeing the growth of these businesses, but 
evaluating these people and these personalities based on just gut, even though, you know, they're dealing with billions of dollars. There's something so incalculable, incalculable or immeasurable about what they have to do engage in all three of these personalities. Oh, here's another question for you guys. What do you think would happen if uh, Elizabeth Holmes's brother, Christian, who went to Duke? I don't know if you heard him say that he went to Duke. Uh, what if he met Travis Kalanick? Like, who who would come out of that room alive? Oh, boy. Ooh. Well, no, I think he'd come out like, you know, Kalanick's like Igor or something. Like, he, he would be <laughs> fully in his thrall. And uh, that would be that. Um, yeah, the brother it, it sort of suddenly introduced like that on Dropout was, was funny. I kind of liked that because it reflected the way that maybe people at the company would be like, wait, who are you <laughs> all of a sudden? Yeah. 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 And it's interesting watching her making it a family affair, especially because she knows this is all a house of lies and she's willing to bring people into that. Whereas the Newmans, you know, uh, Adam's sister's there, obviously you know, Rebecca are married and, and she's getting involved. Like they, they're buying it, you know, they believe it. Whereas Elizabeth, I, I, I can't really, I mean, that that's a real cruelty is to ensnare, unsuspecting albeit you know a little bit obnoxious brother into this whole fiasco well and it also hits toward the one another real tragedy of theranos coming up you meet tyler schultz george schultz's grandson who takes a job at theranos and again spoilers for real life but winds up being one of john carrier's big sources in his um kind of landmark piece that took down theranos and that that was a family rift that never really healed um so i'm i'm interested to see how much tyler we get as that story kind of unravels Right. He goes up against his grandfather, right? Yeah. 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 And his grandfather died um, relatively recently and they, you know, kind of never resolved it. It's, it's sad. Right. And Tyler wanted to speed up Carrie Rue's reporting because he wanted his grandfather to have a chance to reclaim his uh, his reputation after the company went down. Um, so it was sad. Yeah. And, and that, that scene where, you know, he, Tyler comes in and is such an eager sort of fanboy, you know, um, and you're thinking, oh, how nice this young man is like really excited to meet this woman that he had, you know, idolizes, which unfortunately, you know, horribly doesn't happen often enough um, uh, in, in, in the world. And, uh, and there's this paternal thing between, or between, you know, the Schultzes, but also toward Elizabeth. And it's a, it is a personal scene. It's a family scene. It's not a business scene. And yet they're also interlinked and then everything goes awry. And all the while, Elizabeth knows. <laughs> That her mm. machines are exploding and they're going to break into the Siemens machine and steal their tech, essentially. Uh, and yet these she just allows these things to happen because this is part of the narrative, just as the finger puppets are. You see that great moment at the end where she's convincing herself of it, um, where she's like, it's just this phase one. It's phase one. We're just going to do it for now. And I think, to me, that's the most convincing argument for why she let it go on so far, is that she had fooled herself into thinking that they were just going to do it for now and then it was all going to work someday. Um, and I like watching that delusion build over time. Right, incrementally. Yeah, I mean, and it's similar to We Crash, where you know, a, a sole like tech thing, where it's a website or an app or whatever, like that, you know, that is of that world. But like the big mistake, one of the big, huge mistakes that Elizabeth made was getting into the medical industry. One of the big mistakes that the Newmans are making is getting into real estate. Those are old, <laughs> not not fixed necessarily, but those are whole other systems that they don't really know anything about. <laughs> And yeah. yet are trying to manipulate. So if only these these, you know, charismatic weirdos 
had just decided to build an app, I mean, one of them probably wouldn't be going to jail and the other, I don't know, well, I, mean, I guess the Newmans are still plenty, plenty rich, but he might still have his company, I guess. Right. Yeah. Or if, if the Newmans had not tried to sell it as more than a real estate company and claim that it could change the world, if they had just, you know, been fine operating within that box, maybe, maybe. Well, right. If the wing starts talking, you know, about world domination, then we should worry about that. But so <laughs> right. far, other minus some controversies, very valid ones, you know, other uh, co-working spaces seem to be doing just fine without this, you know, larger messianic purpose behind them. Even though WeWork is probably still, you know, it's the Kleenex of co-working space. You you go to We're- a WeWork, even if it's not a WeWork. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so I guess I guess they won in the end. <laughs> Accomplish um, something. <laughs> well, I think we have covered these three ep- these well five episodes uh, uh, pretty well. Unless um, anyone, does, Julie, do you have any more weird facts, or did we did you get uh, all your dirt out? The one thing I was going to mention is that when Gwyneth Paltrow won her Oscar, she partially dedicated it to Rebecca's brother who died of cancer. I did not know that. So I have to go back and watch that Oscar speech. Twist my arm to watch someone's old Oscar speech. Right? Any day. (laughs) But I think that was my best. The thing is so wild. It's just like, I, I, I mean, you couldn't write that, you know, you couldn't make that up. Like, it, it's just yeah. such a perfect, it's not even a detail. It's a huge facet of this whole person uh, in a strange way that it's just, it, it works beautifully in the show. And I think it's funny watching Anne Hathaway, like, pretend she's not a famous movie star, too. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Right. It totally informs who she is. And also, if, you know, Friday, when Friday comes along, Vanity Fair Savannah Walsh is publishing a piece about Gwyneth and Rebecca's relationship. So definitely check out VanityFair.com for that. Yeah, and credit to the um, to the writers and the creators of We Crashed. Uh, um, Drew Cavello and Lee Eisenberg created the show. Um, the way that they in- incorporate Gwyneth uh, a little bit in that first episode, but in the wedding episode of people just saying, is Gwyneth coming? And she gets increasingly impatient. It's just so, there's so many things you could do with that information. And I think they, they deploy it just the right way on the show. All right. Well, that does it for this episode of Still Watching Downfall of the Startups. Katie, Julie, thank you for being here. Uh, Katie, where can people find you when you're not on this podcast? Well, I'm uh, launching a production of The Seagull in a warehouse space down the street, but only for a couple more <laughs> weeks. So please catch me there. Um, and you're playing you all can... the characters. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah all of them in, yeah. in the original Russian, which I don't know okay. yet, but I, I'll, I'll have it down. Yeah, you'll figure right. it out. Um, you can also follow me uh, on Twitter at Katie Rich. And Julie, how about you? Where, where can people find you? I am on Twitter at Julie W. Miller. Also, by the way, we didn't even talk about Jared Leto, how he calls her Baba Ganoush. I love the pet names, but we can get into that a different different episode. That's, All right, that's change your, your Twitter, Twitter handle, handle to right? Baba yeah. Ganoush. <laughs> well, I am at Rylaws. I, of course, do run a, a summer camp up in the Adirondacks if people want to come. <laughs> uh, it's just me drinking a lot alone. So, you know, I'd love the company. From out of uh, a canoe. Bring some Thai food and some soy sauce. <laughs> um, this episode was produced and edited by Dave Gonzalez. Uh, and until next week, happy investing. <laughs>